Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 146. The Lord God of Jacob blesses everyone who trusts him and depends on him. God made heaven and earth. He created the sea and everything else. God always keeps his word. He gives justice to the poor and food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free and heals blind eyes. He gives a helping hand to everyone who falls. The Lord loves good people and looks after strangers. He defends the rights of orphans and widows, but destroys the wicked. The Lord of Zion will rule forever. Shout praises to the Lord. And so we come to God in prayer. Let's pray together. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice with these words, traditionally used on this, the third Sunday of Advent, nicknamed Gaudete Sunday, Rejoice Sunday. We come to you, God of all, with our prayers. We rejoice in the many ways we've experienced your goodness and generosity even in the few days since last we gathered. We praise you for the people of goodwill whose paths have crossed our own and whose words or deeds have brightened our lives. We marvel at the wonder of the natural world, where even the shortest, darkest days, there are things of beauty for us to see if only we would open our eyes. We rejoice in the wonder of your story, the good news that has inspired and continues to inspire faith and hope. We praise you for the mystery of Advent, in which past and future intersect with our present, bringing new understanding to our minds. We marvel at the stubborn refusal of love, hope, joy and peace to be overcome by the darkness of despair, sin and death. We rejoice. Help us to rejoice. We praise. Help us to praise. We marvel. Help us to wonder. Let these not be mere words to which we add an assenting amen. Rather, let them be our experience as your spirit moves within and among us, renewing life and laughter and love. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. These Advent candles remind us of the four directions, north, south, east and west. In each direction, God's people are seeking the promised Messiah. In each direction, we discover God's blessings. On this third Sunday of Advent, we look to the West. The sun travels across the sky and sets in glory in the West, promising a time of gentle sleep, reflection and rest from our labour. The West represents strength for the people of the future. In Christ we rise again with renewed hope and energy. 
we look to the West with hopes and dreams that with the coming of Christ we will soon see the future God promises. As we light our third Advent candle, we look to the West. We offer thanks to God for the gifts of the West and pray for the coming of Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. Let us listen for the word of God. First in Isaiah. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Like a crocus it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of the jackals shall become a swamp. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. A highway shall be called there, and it shall be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveller, not even fools, shall go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And in the New Testament, in James. Be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for precious crop from the earth, being patient with it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Beloved, do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. See the judges standing at the doors. As an example of suffering and patience, beloved, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord.
Our series of Advent Reflections on Isaiah's images has already seen us ponder what it is we mean when we speak about walking in the light and the mysterious reconciliation that results in the idea that a little child shall lead them. Now we're invited to consider the image of streams in the desert. And again, it's a very familiar image. But it's one that I've actually found quite troublesome this week as I've sought to reflect on the scriptures that are set for today. Especially because I started to do some research into how people are trying to green the desert in our own time using complicated irrigation schemes. And discovering that actually that's not always such a good idea because they are exhausting natural aquifers that cannot be refilled. But also there is an ambivalent portrayal of the desert and the wilderness in the narrative of scripture. So what direction should our thoughts take, I wondered? What might it be that God wants us to think about, to hear, to see, to receive, to experience? I have to confess I did quite a bit of wandering around in circles, quite appropriate thinking about deserts and wildernesses. Um, And I found myself wondering about the way that deserts are portrayed in scriptures. And maybe that could help us in our exploration. Depending which translation of the Bible you use, and whether the word is translated as desert or wilderness, or even sometimes as a place name, you get a different number of occurrences. But it's fair to say that overall, something like 300 times throughout the scriptures, the word desert or wilderness is used. Starting in the story of Abram and Sarai and going right through to the mysterious and complicated vision of Revelation. There is a temptation for us to hear the word desert and let's include with that the word wilderness, otherwise I'm going to be repeating myself a lot, and immediately make that a negative connection. A desert is a place of dryness and barrenness. It's unbearably hot by day and unbelievably cold by night. A shifting landscape devoid of landmarks, almost unnavigable. A place in which hapless travellers can become disorientated and risk disaster. But that doesn't really accord with what we discover when we read the scriptures. Many, maybe the majority of the biblical references to deserts are simply descriptions of places to or through which people travelled. Whatever their characteristics geographically or meteorologically, they're mentioned simply as places. Places that bordered the land where people lived. Places they passed through on a journey. Neither benevolent nor malevolent, they just are. Maybe that's something we need to be reminded about, that dry and seemingly barren places are to be expected as part of our experience. Not just the golden sands of a child's drawing, but the wastelands that are perhaps as yet uncultivated or have been allowed to decline and decay. Maybe even urban deserts. I wonder, though, what deserts, literal or metaphorical, lie on the edges of our experience. 
what deserts, literal or metaphorical, do we find ourselves passing through on our way somewhere else? And do we even notice them anymore? Or have they just been an unseen part of the landscape that we, we are bordered by or go through? Of course, what we're talking about in Scripture is not just a physical desert, but also a metaphorical desert, emotional deserts, intellectual, even spiritual deserts, places that are hard graft to travel through that we might prefer to avoid, but no matter how hard we try, at some point, we may well have to go through them to get to where we want to be. Deserts are inevitable. They're part of life. Fatigue, disappointment, disillusionment, loneliness, chronic illness. Each of these, and probably many more, may lie in our path. Unchosen, but unavoidable. Relationships. Employment or the lack of it, even the spiritual life of faith can become dry or drying, sapping our energy and leaving us longing for a stream, a well, an oasis. Deserts are inevitable, even if unwelcome. But that's not the only way they are described in Scripture. The Exodus story gives us a whole other set of images. We have Moses as a shepherd tending sheep in the desert, just the place he happens to be looking after the sheep. Moses asking Pharaoh to allow the Israelites to go out into the desert to make a sacrifice, a ruse to escape, of course, but a hint of something more intentionally spiritual. A a desert as a place to which leaders withdrew for private conversations. Moses and Aaron, Moses and Joshua went out into the desert places to talk. And perhaps most obviously and most importantly, the desert as a place in which an embryonic nation of former slaves began to learn what it meant to be free and to live as the people of God before they entered the land of promise given to Moses. I think it's this last one that's perhaps the most appropriate for us to think about. The idea that a desert place can be a place of growth and maturity. Leaving slavery in Egypt had seemed so exciting until the Israelites discovered that they had to stand on their own two feet. Slavery had been dreadful. But at least they didn't have to think for themselves. They didn't have to worry about where their next meal might come from, and they even had cucumbers in Egypt. They told Moses this. And they didn't have to work out how to order their society. All that was taken care of. The wilderness wanderings remain a mystery to us. The route out of Egypt was hardly obscure or difficult But the people were not yet ready to enter the new land. In fact, some of them would never be ready to enter it. A whole generation would need to pass away before they would be prepared to establish themselves in their new land. 
40 years, the Bible's code for a very long time, spent going round in circles, asking the same questions over and over again, making the same mistakes time and time again, but slowly and painstakingly discovering what it meant to be a grown-up nation rather than a bunch of liberated slaves. When we find ourselves in desert places of our own, we, too, have an opportunity to grow or to give up. There's almost a choice going on. An opportunity to learn things that will prepare us for our own God-given future or to succumb, to dwindle and to die, at least figuratively, and never reach the land we hope for. If we're honest, sometimes we, like the Israelites, long to go back to what we once knew. A nice, secure existence in which we were told what to do, in which other people had to worry about the complicated questions. And if life wasn't fantastic, well, at least it was predictable and we knew what was going to happen. To go forward through the desert, facing the struggle... Living with the dryness, the heat, the cold, the uncertainty is hard work. We'd love it to be over. We'd love it to be quick. But it could be that our own 40 years has to pass, literally or metaphorically, before we are ready to receive the promise God has for us. Harsh as it sounds, sometimes it is easier to give up to succumb to bitterness or hatred, to dismiss the church as irrelevant, or to turn inwards and shrivel, rather than searching for the elusive streams that will offer us refreshment. For streams in the desert there surely are. So deserts are inevitable, and deserts are places where we have the potential either to grow and develop or to wither and die. But thirdly, in scripture, we see deserts as places to encounter God. A lot of biblical imagery of encounter with God involves going upwards, climbing mountains, ascending to Jerusalem, and so on. But every now and again, we're reminded that the desert can be such a place too. This third Sunday in Advent is traditionally assigned to thinking about John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, however you prefer to name him. The wild prophet whose entire ministry was exercised in the wilderness wastelands, the desert places. And people flocked to hear what he had to say and to be baptized by him as a sign of repentance, a turning around of their lives into a new direction. The Gospels speak a lot about lonely places, which sometimes are certainly seen to coincide with the desert or the wilderness. The lonely places to which Jesus withdrew to pray or to be with God. Not for him the grandeur of the temple, though we know he worshipped there regularly too. Not always the obvious high place, symbolically nearer to God, though we know that Jesus also went up mountains on occasion. 
but the lonely places, the unloved and unlovely places on the margins, maybe beyond the margins, where all the distractions could be avoided. But perhaps amongst the most poignant and beautiful illustrations of God being encountered in the desert are not in the readings we've heard today, but in part of the Genesis story of Abraham's pregnant concubine slave, Hagar. Two accounts of her in the desert. The first one, she's actually run away. She's pregnant by Abraham, but Sarah has been really cruel to her, so she runs away into the desert. She's really desperately upset and she feels she's got nothing left, so she runs off into the desert. And she encounters an angel by a desert spring. Not for nothing, that mention of a spring in the desert, I think. She meets with God in this place of utter desolation and desperation. And she's encouraged to go back, which she does. Later, after her son has been born, things become even worse for her. And Abraham himself sends her off with just a skin of water, a bottle of water in our speak, into the desert. And she wanders on until she runs out of water. And it must have been awful for her. I just can't imagine how you would feel. You've got nothing left to offer your child. Nobody seems to want you. She finds a bush and she puts her little boy under there in the shade. And she sits down to wait to die. And in despair, she cries bitterly. And again, God's angel comes to her makes her incredible promises about her her son's future, that he will lead a great nation. But also enables her to see a well where she can draw water. So she draws water and drinks, and the story continues. She goes off with her son, who becomes leader of a great nation. I have a suspicion, though, that sometimes our own desert places can feel a bit like that. We're running on empty. We haven't got anything left, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Our resources are exhausted, and we just think, I'll give up. I'll just lie down and metaphorically die. Even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane seemed to experience something of that, a metaphorical desert, if ever there was one. And he said to God, I don't want to die. Can you take this away from me? That's the desperation, the loneliness, the desertness that Jesus experienced. Or from the cross, that cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? Or, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? whatever it would have been. The original punctuation is long lost. But that rings down through the centuries that Jesus knows that desolation, that isolation, that desert place that we may feel. Maybe, like Hagar, like Jesus, we need an angel. And remember, an angel is a messenger from God, not necessarily a supernatural creature. Just someone sent by God or inspired by God to come alongside us and to help us to notice that actually there is a stream trickling past us in the desert place. 
And I think it's significant that this is a stream, a burn, if you like. It's not a mighty river. It's just a stream. Just enough water to wash our faces and moisten our parched lips. Just enough of a drink to help us to take the next steps. It's not, you know, add water to instant happiness or something like that. It's a stream that will just give us enough refreshment to take a few more steps. Deserts are inevitable. Deserts can take an awfully long time to cross. There's no rushing it. There is no shortcut to freedom. I suppose I could pinch... um, Mandela's expression, couldn't I, have a long journey to freedom. It is a long slog. But deserts can also be places of growth and maturing, as well as places of withering and dying. They can be places where we encounter God or God's messengers in unexpected ways, helping us to spot those trickling streams or the hidden wells that offer us some refreshment. The trouble is, I think, that we live in an age of quick fixes. Most of us in our cupboard at home will have some instant coffee or some instant soup. Very good instant soup on a Thursday lunchtime, if I can just give you a plug for that. Or instant noodles, where we just add water and stir. But the letter of James very importantly reminds us of patience, the patience of the farmer. There are people who cultivate desert places, wilderness places, and they do it without resorting to the quick fix that will ultimately be bad for the planet. They're patient. They plod away at it. Isaiah's image of streams in a desert, a desert that blooms like a rose, probably shouldn't be read as a total transformation of dry places to verdant fields and forests. I don't think he's actually talking necessarily about a literal greening of the entire desert. But it's a vision of hope that in the desert, these streams of life will flow and that the potential is there to be realised, that justice and freedom and wisdom and hope and love might flourish like beautiful flowers as the signs of the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know how life is for everyone here just now. I know quite a few people have got coughs and colds and bugs and other things going on. I know a lot of people have got stressful work or home situations. I know other people are tired and overstretched. But we're all very good at keeping that tucked away, aren't we? Because we don't really like to tell anybody because that looks like weakness. But I expect, if we're honest, we've all got some desert-like stuff going on for us just now. So what might it be that God wants to say to us today about any of that? Who might be the angels who come to minister to us, to show us the stream, the source of potential, of refreshment, of cleansing, of renewal.
And what blossom might we yet have to produce? We come now to our prayers for others, both people who are known to us personally and those who for us are just statistics or names in a news bulletin. Let us pray. The prophet writes, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Renewing and reviving God, we pray this morning for those for whom life is a desert experience. For those who feel, for whatever reason, that they have lost their way, who no longer know who they are or what they're meant to be. We pray for those who feel that their lives are barren, who sense that they've not lived up to other people's expectations of them, or even to their own expectations. For those whose youthful ambitions have not been fulfilled, or whose hopes of happiness have come to dust, God of new beginnings, who has promised that the wilderness shall rejoice and the desert bloom, bring comfort and reassurance to those who feel bitterness or regret, and give hope to those who believe that nothing can ever change for the better. And may we, as far as we are able, be the bringers of that comfort and the carriers of that hope to one another. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. The prophet writes, Say to those who are of a fearful heart, Be strong, Do not fear. We pray for those who today are frightened. For those who are facing life-threatening illnesses. For those who are growing older and are fearful of what old age might bring. For those who dread the arrival of the post each morning with its clutch of bills and final demands. For those for whom violence is a daily reality, even in their own home. Resilient God, who has promised to strengthen the weak and save the fearful, bring to those who are afraid the assurance of your love which casts out all fear. And may we, as far as we are able, be the bearers of that love to one another. Lord, in your mercy, 
Hear our prayer. The prophet writes, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. We pray for those who today are disabled, either by physical or economic or psychological limitations. We pray for those who, because of physical disability, have to summon up every ounce of their strength and courage each day just to do the commonplace things that the rest of us do without thinking. Washing, dressing, making a meal, catching a bus, going to work. We pray for those whose choices are limited by poverty and whose lives are worn down by the constant struggle to stay out of debt. And we pray for those who impose limits on themselves out of a sense of unworthiness or inadequacy. Generous God, who has promised that the lame shall leap like deer and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. Give abundant life to all whose lives are cramped or confined. And may we, as far as we are able, be the catalysts for that new life in one another. Lord, In your mercy, hear our prayer. So, beloved, hand in hand with God, let us walk in light and justice. Hand in hand with God, let us be a light for others. Hand in hand with God, let us speak and live in love until that day when all sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Amen. As we go from here, may God's light illuminate our paths, and may we discover the streams of refreshment that are needed for our journey, today and every day. Amen.